Vader's shuttle has arrived. Lord Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, G, I'll be there to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down at I tell you, the station will be operational as planned. Well, the man don't think so, and he'll be cruising down here to check out his ride. The Empress coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN. to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Brick the Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about quantum wires, lithium, and birds in the fast lane. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Hiro Kanamori discussing geophysics of earthquakes. Also, we'll find out what causes the tides. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. How about you, Charles? Oh, I'm, I'm excited as always because it's another fine day for science. Ooh, uh, science wins. <laughs> science in the spotlight. I can just feel the, the excitement growing already. That makes me warm. <laughs> so what's new in science this week? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just I'm basking in the glow of the warmness of science right now. Okay. Uh, well, it turns out that uh, lithium is in the news. Lithium. Lithium. Isn't that good for those people with bipolar disorder? It is indeed, and it may also be good for people with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's? Yes. What's the connection here? Well, it turns out that, uh, well, as you mentioned, for the last 30 years, lithium has been used to control the mood swings of bipolar disorder. Uh, but a recent study by Paula Nunez and colleagues at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, they examined a number of uh, elderly people, about 74 people, to see uh, their risk of Alzheimer's disease. And it turns out that only 4% of those taking lithium had Alzheimer's disease compared with 21% of those who are not taking the drug. So uh, they suggest that this lithium, therefore, may uh, lower the risk of Alzheimer's disease in elderly people. It may actually slow down your degeneration? That's that's what they're uh, they're thinking. They don't have any mechanism yet, but they think that it's a good uh, corollary. Amazing. Just that <laughs> little atom. Uh, is, there some, is there anything lithium cannot do? <laughs> 
But the study's not without its critics, of course. Uh, Bart Destruper says that the numbers are so small, it's difficult to really draw any firm conclusions about it. And mm-hmm. they say, well, more tests obviously will need to be done. So uh, hold off before you rush out to... Uh, buy a tank. <laughs> buy a tank of... Li- you know, well, you know, I, I like a little lithium on my spaghetti anyway, so it's, <laughs> if you can get it. <laughs> and it's also fun just to throw into a pond full of water. Oh, yeah, it just blows up in your face. Yeah, <laughs> any, any fun little salt like that. This is interesting work. It can be found in the recent edition of Nature. All right, so have you heard about quantum computers? Uh, I've heard something about the quantum computers, uh, that they're quantum and computing. So the basic idea is that we're going to use bits in here that could have a superposition of either up or down, or either zero or one at the same time. Oh, so it can uh, do multiple computations at the same time? Is that the idea? Or? Right, so the idea is that instead of you know um, entering a set of... Ar- of digits, you can center all possibilities at the same time right. and let it calculate on that. Oh, intriguing. So we would use spins of atoms, perhaps, to uh, store these bits. Right, and this, this is just making use of the uh, the intrinsic property of things at the quantum level, that they can have two states at the same time. Right. So one of the problems in uh, building an actual quantum computer is how do you transfer the data from these bits, or atoms, or electrons, or photons. And there's a paper that just came out in the Journal of Physical Review Letters, which suggests that the best way to do it is to use a a domino-like effect, a particle chain, to transfer the data. I always thought it would come down to particle chains. The previous idea was to use some sort of uh, operation, an operation in which you would send pulses of uh, either radio waves or photons and whatnot to do that, but instead having an actual physical transference of a spin or the states is actually a much better way. Oh, okay. So instead of uh, transferring via another mechanism, it's actually just sort of a direct transfer. Right, a physical transfer. Wow. Well, cut out the middleman. Yes. (laughs) They always charge a little too much. This is just very seminal work that has a proof of concept of how uh, these quantum computers computers might look in, say, 10 or 20 years. Okay. You know, just groundbreaking work. Uh, until then, I'll, I'll, I'll work with my uh, wonderful G5 Macintosh computer from uh, Apple. <laughs> I like them apples. Yeah, them apples are good. All right, so if you want to learn more about quantum computing. There's a very nice article in July 27th issue of Technology Review. All right, Frank, so how do you find your way home? I look at the northern star. That's that's a good cue. Now, uh, how do you think birds find their way home? Magnets, I guess. Actually, that that is one way, but uh, it turns out a study is showing that uh, homing pigeons may actually use uh, man-made landmarks. Man-made landmarks? Yeah. You know, actual visual landmarks? Yeah. They, they'd actually follow, like, say, for instance, the highways home. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's been a contention for quite some time about how much birds actually pay attention to visual cues in their in their homing. Uh, more well studies, of course, magnets and, and the North Pole, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a group of researchers at the University of Zurich, led by Hans-Peter Lipp, uh, has uh, attached miniature global positioning systems to the backs of 34 pigeons right. to actually track uh, their movements as they go. Uh-huh. And in the study, basically, they showed that uh, a lot of the pigeons actually followed major highways leading in the general direction of their, their home. Wow. It's man helping nature. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but basically what they're suggesting is that uh, homing pigeons are basically just very adaptable. They can choose from any number of cues, and they'll just use anything that will help them get back home. So. Wouldn't it be easier for them just to hitch a ride on the back of a semi or something? Uh, I think so, but they have very little to bargain with. <laughs> so, And usually they can't stick out their thumbs quite as well. Uh, it's fascinating work, and it was published in the recent edition of Science Now.
so now I have a uh, story from the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry. Ah, Max Planck. Yes. And uh, some scientists have actually shown that they've created polymeric nitrogen. Finally! It's been so long. <laughs> I've waited for polymeric nitrogen. It's almost like uh, diamonds, right? <laughs> yeah. What's so, what's so great about polymeric nitrogen? Well, nitrogen is, what, 72% of the atmosphere, right? right? It's a uh, uniform of uh, two atoms uh, attached to each other through a triple bond, which right. is probably one of the most stable bonds in uh, nature in the world. But uh, what these scientists have done is they've filled a chamber, a uh, diamond anvil cell, uh, with nitrogen gas and heated up to 2,000 degrees Kelvin at a te- at a pressure of 1.1 million uh, atmospheres. And this was uh, sufficient to break that bond and create polymeric nitrogen. It's sufficient to break those triple bonds and enforce the nitrogens to bond with three other nitrogens via single bonds. Oh wow! Yes. So maybe if if I got in a uh, room with a bunch of women at that temperature and pressure. Maybe they would force me to bond with them as well. With three of them? Uh, hey, I, <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> they don't mind. This compound seems to be incredibly unstable. And it seems to have an energy capacity five times that of the most powerful non-nuclear material. Like a, so like a super explosive. Okay. Because it would uh, break down really break fast. Right. Go back to uh, the atomic nitrogen and release and the expansion, a lot of energy. Yeah. yeah, the expansion of the gas, yeah. So people think they could use this for uh, as a possible propellant or an explosive because of this uh, energy potential. Oh, what, you know, what the world needs now is more explosives, really. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's fascinating, I guess. A good, good, interesting source of uh, storing energy and things like that. Uh-huh. So this is an interesting article written in the August issue of Nature Materials by Mikhail Aramets. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Professor Hiro Karamori will join us to talk about earthquake science. So, stay tuned. Grocks. Well, one thing that's not too far away from the minds of Californians is earthquakes. How does it occur? Can we predict them? And what should we do in case there is one? Well, joining us today is a very special guest, Professor Hiro Karamori from the California Institute of Technology, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the science behind earthquakes. Dr. Karamori is a professor of geophysics, and recently he was awarded the Japan Academy Prize. Um, Professor Kanamori, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Um, first of all, could you tell us what you were awarded for for the Pan Prize? 
I have been working mainly on seismological problems. However, I have been working on other problems too. But I guess mainly this time they focused on my seismological research. Okay. And uh, I guess uh, if I view my research myself, uh, the important thing is I try to understand uh, the basic principle behind uh, um, earthquake uh, physics, what kind of physics is working behind it. And in the past, many years ago, basically study of earthquakes was pretty empirical. Empirical means you accumulate observation and, say, plot the data on graph and look at them and see what you can get. But I wanted to understand more basic physics behind it. And uh, so that's sort of my general uh, style of research, to understand the basic uh, principle. And recently I'm trying to apply towards uh, earthquake hazard mitigation. And uh, earthquake science or seismology has two aspects. Uh, one is uh, on more basic research. We really want to understand how nature works in producing earthquakes and others. And the second aspect is uh, how to use that information to reduce the impact of earthquakes on society. So this is normally called hazard mitigation. So there are two aspects. One is more fundamental science and the other one is application. And I have been working on both, uh, trying to link those two. More recently, I have been trying to use most modern seismology for effective hazard mitigation. Uh, that's one of my research yes, these days. For example, you know, when people talk about uh, hazard mitigation, they think of uh, earthquake prediction, for example. The, uh, unfortunately, that's a very difficult thing. The earthquake is essentially a failure process, and there are so many factors involved. So it's very difficult to make precise prediction. We can sort of understand long-term behavior, but uh, it's very difficult to tell when and where and how large an earthquake is going to be. So prediction may not be uh, possible, or it's a three it's not easy to make. So then the next question is how we can use seismology for hazard mitigation. And one area is what we call uh, real-time seismology, and collect data very quickly after an earthquake happens. And uh, then by looking at the very beginning of the signal, sometimes you can tell how large the earthquake is going to be. So if you come up with that, with that estimate very quickly, uh, you can make some sort of prediction regarding how large the earthquake is going to be. And if you send that information to people, at some distance away by, of course, radio communication or computer communication, then people there can tell or at least expect something to happen. And, of course, this hasn't been completely implemented because we are still looking at, you know, some years downstream. Uh, we are trying to make it happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So, realistically, how many seconds or minutes of warning? we are trying to get within a few seconds, three seconds or so, uh -huh. after an occurrence of the earthquake. Uh -huh. And then within three seconds or so, you can make some estimation regarding how strong the ground motion is going to be. I see. All right? And then you send the information. And then, of course, then the question is how people can use that information because um, human beings can cannot react very quickly. And uh, one, I, th I think potentially most important application is control of uh, structures. There are many large structures these days, high-rise buildings, bridges, water tanks, highways, and all kinds of things. And uh, to some extent, uh, uh, they can control the structures very quickly. Suppose if you know something is coming, you can change the properties of the building that 
uh, you can uh, reduce the impact of ground motion on the structure. Like uh, automobiles, sometimes, uh, I don't know actually, but uh, some modern cars may have this kind of control system to some extent. If you drive on a rough road, detects how rough, how bumpy the road is, control maybe the shock absorber, smooth out uh, the, the impact. And the same kind of concept, if they can get the information very, very quickly, uh, they can do something and control the structure so that they can minimize the impact of ground motion. That's really the concept. We are working from seismology end, and we are making some progress. But then until the other end is ready, the other end means engineering end is ready, we can't really make it work. <laughs> so at this moment, we are really working in that area, just basically to link very fundamental seismology and modern seismology to uh, modern engineering practice. There was a controversial finding from uh, UCLA. A team there had predicted that there's a good chance earthquake will occur in oh. Southern California. Do you have any comments on that? Uh, yes, uh, this is the Professor Keris Borok at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And that's a sort of traditional method. You know, uh, you look at lots of seismic data and you look at the past uh, examples to see whether there is any sort of pattern uh, common to uh, the occurrence of large earthquakes in the past. And if you see a similar pattern, you make some prediction. But I must say, I mean, there is a tremendous uncertainty in that. I don't know how often they can be successful. No one knows Mm -hmm. because they have just started. So I'm not too enthusiastic about that kind of approach because because of the nature of the process. Uh, The process is very unpredictable. For example, you, you can sort of think of uh, some accident on freeways as rush-hour comes. I think the probability of having accident is higher. Sure. That you can tell. But when you have a single accident somewhere, uh, sometimes because of chain reaction, that accident can grow. But if everyone is very careful around it, the accident can be contained uh, to a small event. That's very difficult to predict because you have to really understand the attitude of every driver on the freeway. And the same thing, an earthquake can happen. I mean, small earthquakes are happening all over. And whether that one grows to a large event or not depends upon lots of factors surrounding it. And, of course, uh, we cannot really understand every detail of that. So that's the reason why it's so unpredictable. So these models, are they based on chaos theory? Uh, well, chaos, chaos concept is there, yes. Uh, you, you mean this uh, chaos broke thing? Yes. Uh, yes, um, you know, in general, they call nonlinear dynamic. And... Uh, Chaos theory, behind the chaos theory, uh, there is non-linear dynamics. So in that sense, uh, it is. But uh, I would say it's more really empirical, just by looking at the past examples. And if there is any common sort of rule, you can use that rule to predict an earthquake in the future. But, you know, that rule isn't really that rigid rule, you see. There are all kinds of variations. Mm -hmm. That's why so it's very difficult to make precise predictions. I guess uh, the deadline is uh, September 5th or so, the end of the time window. So, you, I mean, something may happen, of course. I mean, in California, always uh, there is a possibility of having a large event. So it can happen by chance. But uh, if they are right to some extent, uh, well, something may happen. And uh, So we can't really say that uh, that approach is invalid. <laughs> but I guess we need to accumulate more uh, experience.
experience. So let's talk a little bit about the, the geophysics of an earthquake. Can you describe what a typical California earthquake looks like from a you physical point of view? California earthquakes? Yes. But in a way, earthquakes are very similar wherever you go. But of course, in California, uh, there is a big uh, geological structure called the San Andreas Fault, which runs from uh, um, Gulf of California all the way to not to Cape Mendocino. So it's a long fault. Uh, so in a way, uh, this is a major structure, but uh, the last event that happened in Southern California was in 1857, and uh, that fault has been very, very quiet because uh, by common sense, if something big happened, it takes some time to accumulate enough strength to produce another earthquake. Right. In a way, it has been very quiet. Right. However, because of this structure, uh, there are lots of uh, stresses in the crust in Southern California associated with this structure. And uh, say 1994, North Ridge earthquake, or 1992, Landers earthquake, all of these happen off the San Andreas not on the San Andreas. So in a way, in California, you, again, you need to really worry about every place rather than just San Andreas. Which brings me to the next question. Some people have speculated that having smaller magnitude earthquakes relieves the stress to prevent a big one. Uh, yes. Is that true? Well, in a way, it's theoretically, it is true, but it's a very small amount. Say, the energy released in small earthquakes is just so small that in order to have uh, sufficient influence, you really need to have lots of them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in ordinary sense, just have uh, some small earthquakes probably wouldn't help at all. You know, it's just a, such a small amount compared with the kind of energy released in big earthquakes. So, to the first order, the answer is uh, it doesn't help. So, I understand that uh, in an earthquake, most of the energy is absorbed as heat rather than the seismic waves. Uh, yeah. About what percentage of it goes into heat? Into heat? Yes. Well, it depends upon earthquake, like, you know, of course, I mean, this has been a very controversial subject, and the people have very diverse opinions, but uh, it's really from zero to hundred. <laughs> so for most events, we think the amount of heat generated is very small, maybe less than 10% or something, mm -hmm. uh, for a shallow event, like the events on the San Andreas. But some people think it's almost 90%, <laughs> so you see how diverse it is. But uh, I think the reason why you're asking is uh, maybe uh, we wrote a paper uh, some 10 years ago on the heat summer energy budget on deep Bolivian earthquake. There was an earthquake at a depth of 600 kilometers, very deep. And in this case, we are almost certain that a large fraction of energy went to heat, like more than 90%. So a small amount of energy was released as seismic wave. And this is for a very large, deep focus earthquake. But for shallow events, as I said, uh, there is a big debate. Uh, depending upon whom you ask, the answer can be very different. But uh, we think that... Uh, very large fraction of the energy is radiated as seismic. I understand you also have done some work uh, studying the correlation between uh, the atmosphere and the ground, the, uh, the acoustic oh, waves. This Could is called the morning glory, right? Could you yes. tell us a little bit about that? Well, that's an interesting wave, actually. Um, this is a wave in the atmosphere, and uh, unlike seismic waves, it's a very slow wave. It, it propagates at about 10 meters per second. So yes. if you can run fast enough, you can capture it. <laughs> <laughs> and it propagates only in LA Basin. And this is produced by a temperature inversion. You know, if you lived in Southern California, you knew the smog, and the smog is mainly uh, caused by inversion layer. Mm -hmm. Sometimes temperature uh, increases as you go up, 
Right. Uh, very often, the temperature uh, on top of Mount Wilson is about 10 degrees higher than temperature in Pasadena here. Mm-hmm. So when the temperature in- inversion happens, we build some sort of layer, uh, atmospheric layer, below um, one kilometer or so. It's almost like uh, having an ocean in the atmosphere. So if you have an ocean, as you know, you can have a wave like tsunami. And this particular wave is very similar to a tsunami, but it happened uh, in the atmosphere rather than in water. So the propagation speed is very slow, and uh, it's an interesting wave, and uh, it happens uh, maybe five times or so in two years. And uh, exactly what causes this wave is not very well understood. You, you asked me about correlation, mm-hmm. and that correlation is kind of mysterious at the moment, I must say. Uh, we, you know, we had only two-year data, and uh, we have to probably look at the more data to see whether that correlation is real or not. So uh, we don't know yet, actually. Uh, are there any um, uh, exciting trends occurring in geophysics or seismology these days? Well, are lots of things are exciting. <laughs> but uh, to, be, to get excited, actually, sometimes you need to know something about it. Right. <laughs> Because if you don't know anything about it, nothing looks interesting. Uh, let's see. I think really one exciting thing in seismology that happened in 10 years or 20 years, maybe last 10 years or so, is that we can really measure things very, very quickly and very rapidly. And uh, say 20 years ago, for example, it took a long time for us to really come up with, uh, say, the model of an earthquake that has just happened. And uh, so these days, it's almost real time, and mainly because of uh, the advancement in computer and the computational methodology and uh, high-quality instruments, seismic instruments. So you can really measure everything very, very rapidly. And also, uh, most recent development is really computer numerical calculation. You, you can take a very complicated structure of the crust mm-hmm. and compute wave field in it, mm-hmm. and you can compare that with observed wave so that you can determine the structure and you can determine type of earthquake that has happened very, very quickly. So, in a way, if we can understand something very rapidly, we can make more rapid progress, both in basic science and also for hazard mitigation. And I guess one last question. What's the difference between seismology and uh, geophysics? Geophysics covers a lot of other things, like, you know, this atmospheric problem is not seismology. Mm-hmm. And the ocean science is also, well, maybe sometimes people call it different. Like geomagnetism, magnetic problems, magnetic fields, that under geophysics, not under seismology. This definition is to some extent arbitrary, but uh, there are lots of things that are not covered under standard seismology, like geodesy to measure the deformation of the crust. Right. Sometimes people <laughs> include it in seismology, but uh, probably traditionally it's a separate discipline. Yeah, Professor Kanamori, thanks for joining All us right. on Berkeley Gox today. All right. And we were just talking to Professor Kanamori from the California Institute of Technology. He's the professor of geophysics and was recently an awardee of the Japan Academy Prize. This is Berkeley Gox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what causes the tides. So stay tuned.
here's Jedi Master Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. <clears throat> Thank you, Charles Louis. And the answer is the moon. Mysterious and dangerous this force is, but the gravity caused the tidal wave. It does. <clears throat> and that's how the surf goes up. Very cryptic, oh Jedi Master Yoda. And now, it is Esteban with Question of the Week. If you have the true heart of the Spaniard, you can find your way home, no problem. But the pigeons, are they true Spaniards? Well, how do they find their way home? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, my friend, you can email us at groxerootmail.com. You'll never win anything, but you might just have the true heart of the Spaniard. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Link. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>